As you are seated, if you brought your Bibles with you, uh, please turn to the scripture text for today's sermon. 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 6 through 14. 1 Peter 5, verses 6 through 14. If you didn't bring a Bible, the, the words to this scripture will also be on the screen behind me, and you can follow along there. God's word. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, stand firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Sylvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Peter ends his letter with some final exhortations to the Christians who are suffering. And he says in verse 13, I have written briefly to you exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. The true grace of God. Now that's a unique phrase. Throughout the Bible, we hear about the grace of God, this grace that he showers upon those who are his children, his favor that he bestows upon them. Those who have put their faith in the Lord Jesus are the ones who are evidences of this grace. They're the ones who receive the favor of God. And we see that this favor of God has very real benefits for life right now and for life for all eternity. And perhaps the best part about this grace of God is that there is nothing that you can do to earn it that he gives it to you simply because he loves you. And he honors the sacrifice of his son Jesus in doing so. That's grace. And so it's a curious thing, isn't it? 
to think about a phrase, this is the true grace of God. I mean, it poses a bunch of questions. What is happening to these people that causes them maybe to second-guess God's grace? Or if there is such a thing as true grace, is there something that is false grace or lesser grace? What specifically is this false grace that is causing people to question God? These are important questions. These are important questions because they cut right to the core of your understanding of who God is and how he works, how he interacts with us in humanity, and it helps inform what we think about our present circumstances, whether good or difficult, and what the implications of them actually are. And so let's explore these questions together. And as we do, Peter concludes this letter, and he does so by reminding them, by reminding us of the logic of grace and glory. There is a driving home of his main theme that happens in this closing section, and it has a specific logic to it, a specific order of thinking that helps us to understand. It's the logic of grace and glory. And maybe to think about it, we could think about it this way. What if I offered you a choice? You could have a life that is relatively easy, that is defined by positive relationships, that has a good middle-class income, and is overall a life in which you experience physical health. But in this life, you would not experience the full favor of God. Or you could choose a life that was not easy, that had some positive and some difficult relationships attached to it, that had seasons of financial uncertainty, and almost certainly included some form of physical difficulty. But in that life, you experienced the full grace, the full favor of God upon you. Which life would you choose? We'd like to think that we would choose the life that has the most important and most valuable things attached to it, right? I mean, we'd like to think that we would choose the true grace of God over our temporary comforts. However, you know and I know that that is easy to talk about when you're standing right here right now, but it's much more difficult when you're in the middle of suffering. Thankfully, God doesn't make us choose <laughs> because you don't get to choose how your life is going to completely turn out. God enacts his will, and we have the opportunity to engage and to respond in specific ways. And this is where Peter's concern is really centered. He's concerned for these Christians who are experiencing difficulty. He's concerned for Christians who are in exile, Christians who are suffering difficulty. He's concerned that they will fall prey to the notion that physical success and material blessing is the sign of God's ultimate grace. And because they are not experiencing physical success 
and material blessing, then maybe, just maybe, God has not bestowed his grace upon them. We indicate our temptation to this way of thinking all the time. Whether it's how we talk about blessing or whether it is how we think and feel in the midst of suffering. But my friends, this is not the logic of grace and glory. The logic of grace and glory is an upside-down type of logic. And we see it here in this passage in really two spots. Look at it with me. He says right away in verse 6, he says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. And, verse 10, And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. So when you start to see this principle that is talked about in a couple of different ways, you see maybe even these two verses together, after you've suffered for a little while, God is going to exalt you. There's a divine principle at play here. You must be brought low if you will be exalted high. You must be brought low to be exalted high. Peter tells the Christians, you will suffer in this life, but it will be short-lived God knows your suffering, so don't think it's strange. And in the midst of this suffering for a little while, you begin to experience not that God has withdrawn his grace from you, but in fact, just the opposite. He extends his grace to you all the more. This true grace, so that in the midst of being brought low, you will be exalted again as he finishes his redemption upon you. This is what Peter calls the true grace of God. After you've been down, he brings you up. After you've suffered, you will be exalted. After a little while, you will have eternal glory. Now, my friends, that is a promise. What a hope. What a reward. But let's be honest. Because this is difficult for us for so many reasons and perhaps chiefly because we live in a Western affluent society. Maybe you're here today and you don't, even cons- you don't consider yourself to be rich per se, but the relative affluence of our entire culture means that at any given time of discomfort, we can pursue actively Something that will comfort us. (laughs) Maybe it is the escape of flipping on the television. Or maybe it's the comfort of food as you just want to go out and get a cheeseburger. (laughs) And the list goes on and on. 
We live in a time right now where our comfort affords us the pursuit of entertainment, and that entertainment drives us to pursue comfort at nearly every moment of our lives. And if God is saying to the Christians that part of your life will be difficult and suffering, but our whole life is swimming in the sea of opportunities for comfort, now you can see where we have a little bit of a disconnect, where it's difficult for us to grasp the truth of what he is saying right here. The danger with prosperity is this, that it binds us to the world. We think that prosperity leads us to find our place in the world. But of course the reality is is that the world has found its place in us. And when that's the case, we lose sight of the fact that this world is not our home, as Peter has mentioned earlier, and we're not meant to actually be comfortable here. There's a divine principle at play. You must be brought low to be exalted high. And this is a truth that Christians have wrestled with now for centuries. The Irish poet Dalon Forgale in the 6th century writes the verse to a hymn that we still sing today. Riches I heed not, nor man's empty praise. Thou my inheritance, now and always. Thou and thou only, first in my heart, high King of heaven, my treasure thou art. We know that this message is a message of Jesus as he tells his disciples that their life will be hard with a very simple phrase, take up your cross and follow me. John Newton has been helping us sing about this reality since the 1700s all the way to today when in perhaps the most famous hymn of our time, he writes, through many dangers, toils, and snares, we have already come. T'was grace hath brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead us home. And so if you go through life and you are thinking to yourself, life is hard And because life is hard, it must mean that God has withdrawn his grace from me. Then take this drink of cold water on a hot day. The fact that life is hard does not mean that God has withdrawn his grace from you. In fact, just the opposite is true. God will bestow his grace upon you all the more. This is refreshing truth when you're riddled with fear about a global pandemic. When you're riddled with fear about your uncertain place in our country. When you see difficulty upon your own family. Life is hard. God sees it. He knows it. And he tells us that you must be brought low to be exalted high. And so Christian, stand firm. Stand firm and trust that God will exalt you by true grace. Stand firm, he says, 
in the concluding words to this group of people and to me and to you and trust that God's going to exalt you by true grace. That begs the question, well, what does standing firm look like in trusting God in this way? And Peter doesn't leave us hanging here. He says in verses 6 and 7 just how we're able to do it. He says, humble yourselves, verse 6, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. The idea of humility and pride are the two sides of the coin that are, constitute another theme that's woven throughout this letter. We've heard this talked about again and again and explored it together. We see that, as Andrew Murray once said, pride must die in you or nothing of heaven can live in you. And so Peter says to humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. It's an interesting expression. It's not just humble yourselves under God. Humble, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. And this is a way of emphasizing the agency in which God works in the world, his mighty hand. And to humble yourself under this mighty hand means that you have a disposition in which you willingly submit yourself to God's working in the world. It's a disposition by which you look at all of your life, whether you like the circumstances you're in or not. You recognize that God is doing something that may be out of your sight, in the Old Testament, the hand of God was used to describe his work in blessing people, his work in power, his work in judgment. Peter's saying, Christians, you recognize that God is at work with a specific disposition toward him and his work. To humble yourself means that your conscience of your status as the creation and his status as the creator, you're conscious of your status as finite, <laughs> and his status as eternal. You're conscious of your shortcomings, and you are conscious of his infinite value. And it means that you become prepared to live in whatever situation he places you in. I wonder if that's how you think about your life. God, you've placed me here in this time and in this place and in this circumstance and I will trust you. How do you do that? How do you humble yourself and grow in your trust for God in this way? Well, Peter tells us in verse 7, he says, you humble yourself by casting all of your anxieties on him because he cares for you. The grammar here is pretty specific. It's not a separate idea. Peter's saying the way in which you humble yourself in a difficult life is by casting your anxieties on God. This is opposed to what I am tempted to do and probably what many of you are tempted to do, which is to just lower my head and work harder 
to stuff the anxieties inside and then to stew on them for a little while and then let it affect my mood and then let it affect how I treat others and then let it affect my relationship with God and ultimately start poisoning my own life. What Peter is getting at here is that when we hold on to our own anxieties, the own difficulties that we have, that this is actually a sign or it constitutes a type of a lack of faith. We can look throughout history and we can see great examples of people who were faithful even though they were in very severe circumstances. Circumstances that would often result in worry and fear and anxiety. And many of these people were missionaries who followed God to the ends of the earth and had very little upon them except for difficulty and death. Two such missionaries give a beautiful and succinct description of this dynamic. George Muller once said that the beginning of anxiety is the end of faith. And the beginning of true faith is the end of anxiety. Hudson Taylor, missionary to China, who would later found what we call OMF, or Overseas Missionary Fellowship, gave this excellent advice. He said, let us give up our work, our plans, ourselves, our lives, our loved ones, our influence, our all, right into God's hand. And then when we have given all over to him, there will be nothing left for us to be troubled about. These men and countless others have exercised deep faith and it was found in humbling themselves before the Almighty God and casting their anxieties not upon themselves, not upon their spouse, not upon their boss, but upon Him. Psalm 55.22 says, Cast your burden on the Lord, and He will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be moved. Philippians 4.6 says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Maybe you're here today and you are faced with something in your personal life that is causing you great consternation. It's maybe shaking your faith in God. Maybe there's something going on in your life that is causing you to hide your faith in God. Or perhaps there's a breakdown in a relationship with a friend or a family member or a member of our church and it's causing you significant anxiety. Maybe you're caring for aging parents in the midst of a global health crisis and that keeps you awake at night, and it causes that tension in your chest. Whatever your situation might be, know that you can cast your care upon God because He cares for you. God cares about the details. When you become his child by making a decision to follow Jesus with your life, he treats you as a father treats his child with all of the love and resource 
upon you. He meets you. He's faithful to meet you in your place of need. God cares about you. He loves you. So humble yourself, Peter says, under his mighty hand. And that fact is especially important because there is one who does not care about you and who does not have your best interest in mind. And Peter addresses him as well in verses 8 and 9. He says, be sober-minded, be watchful, and resist Satan. Verses 8 and 9 say, be sober-minded and be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. According to a 2016 Gallup poll, 89% of Americans still believed in God, the existence of a real God at that point in history. But only 61% of Americans believed in the existence of a real Satan. Many millennials and younger believe that Satan is merely a symbol of evil, not a a real being. I wonder what you believe about Satan. And I wonder how often you think about him. Because when Peter says to be (laughs) sober-minded, that means to be serious in the way that you think about things of the spiritual realm, both the good and the bad. And the witness of the Bible again and again is that Satan is in fact a real being, that he has no, uh, no actions for your benefit, that he is in fact your adversary, and that he tempts people with the goal of their destruction. For the non-Christian, he tempts you. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, you haven't put your faith in Jesus yet, you're maybe pondering or you're maybe a little bit apathetic about spiritual things, this is the way that Satan will often tempt you. Satan will often tempt non-Christians to believe that your sin is not that big of a deal. He tempts you to keep on sinning and to go through life just comparing yourself to the people around you instead of to a holy God. He helps you, Satan does, in the vague notion of religion or a casual approach to the divine. It's like the person who doesn't feel quite right. And even though they believe in all the benefits of modern medicine, they don't go to the doctor. And the cancer rages inside of them. And sin is like that cancer. The Bible says that the wages or the price of your sin is death. Death in the physical realm and eternal judgment in the afterlife. But the good news of God through the gospel of true grace in Jesus Christ is that God forgives you of your sin if you put your faith in his son. If you commit yourself to him and seek this forgiveness, he restores you and the cancer of sin is healed. Satan also tries to tempt Christians. And he does so by tempting you, Christian, to leave an area of your life that is not surrendered to God. There's a Haitian pastor who illustrates this principle through a parable. And he said a certain man wanted to buy wanted to sell his house, excuse me, for $2,000. And another man wanted to buy the house, 
but he could not afford the price. And so after some time and some negotiation, the two men came to an agreement. The man would buy the house for $1,000, but with one caveat, that the man who was selling the home would still own one very small piece of the property, which was merely a small nail that was hammered in above the doorway. After several years, the original owner wanted to buy his house back, but the new owner did not want to sell it. And so the first owner went out, and he found the carcass of a dead dog. And he hung it on that small nail that he still owned over the doorway of the home. And not long did it take for the house to become unlivable. (laughs) And the family was forced to sell the home back to the original owner simply because he owned that small little nail. The Haitian pastor concludes, if we leave the devil with even one small peg in our life, he will return his rotting garbage to hang all over it, making it unfit for Christ's habitation. And so Peter ends the letter and he says, don't let Satan get any foothold in your life. Don't have a crack in the door. Don't have an area that is unsurrendered to God. He attempts to occupy this area and his desire is to devour you. I wonder what that is in your life. I wonder if there is an area in your life where you have not completely surrendered to God. Do you know what it is? Maybe it's in your thoughts. Maybe it's in your relationships. Maybe it's in your work ethic or your sexuality. Or perhaps it's with your money. Give residency to God in all of the areas of your life. And resist the devil. Be sober-minded. Be serious about your spiritual life and watch out This is all part of what Peter says when he says, stand firm and trust that God will exalt you by true grace. There's more good news that comes at the end, however. When you look at verses 10 and 11 with me, we see the good news that victory awaits us. Again, there's a revisiting of this theme after you have suffered a little while. The God of all grace who's called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. So the principle is repeated. Suffering for a little while will result in God's exaltation through the means of his grace. And how God applies this true grace to you happens in four works of God in your life. He restores, he confirms, he strengthens, and he establishes. To restore something is to mend or to repair what is broken. God does that in your life. He repairs the things that are broken. Praise God because I can't fix them myself and you can't either. And yet, by the grace of God, He takes things that are lost and makes them found. He takes things that are shattered and mends them back together. 
He also confirms you, which means simply to firm you up, to make you stronger for the situation that you are in. He strengthens you. He gives you courage and strength and determination and resolve. And he establishes you, which means that our defenses rests on something that is firm, a firm foundation that will not crack. It's established in its nature. You know, last week, the Gallup organization released its yearly poll on mental health, and it became a tremendous illustration of this very idea of what God does in Christians through true grace in the midst of difficulty. Every year since 2001, Gallup has asked Americans as part of its November health and healthcare survey to say whether or not their own mental health and emotional well-being is excellent, good, fair, or poor. And although the majority of U.S. adults continue to rate their mental health as excellent or good, far fewer say it's fair or poor, the latest poll displayed that the excellent ratings are eight points lower this year than they were last year. Or to say it another way, mental health and emotional well-being is declining. (laughs) among Americans in 2020. And of all the demographics studied and all the categories by which they divide this data, it showed a number of interesting things. It showed that Democrats are faring better than Republicans in this election year. Is that surprising to anybody? But yet their mental health is still declining. It shows, interestingly, that those who make $40,000 or less are in better and stronger mental and emotional health than those who make $40,000 to $100,000 and $100,000 and up. That's interesting. And yet, their mental health is also declining. It's striking, the real striking feature of the whole survey was that of the 15 categories defined, that only one category of people, only one category of people said that their mental health has actually increased in the last year. Only one. It was the category of people who said that they attended religious services every week. Now let that sink in for a minute. 15 different categories, demographic categories, parsed and sliced and defined, and only one category in the midst of a global pandemic with significant uncertainty, with financial turmoil, with racial tensions, with political unrest, those who went to church were the only category of those who said their mental and emotional well-being actually grew healthier. It's almost like God looked at the Christians who he loves and he began to bestow favor and true grace upon them as he was meeting them and restoring them and confirming them and strengthening them and establishing them. All the while, a world looks on with wonder how on earth 
were they doing so well in such a terrible year? God keeps his promises. Persevere and you will receive the reward. When God promises to his people that he will bless them with salvation, he will see them through to their ultimate exaltation. Peter says, I have written briefly to you exhorting and describing that this is the true grace of God. It's not false grace. It's not lesser grace. It's true grace. So stand firm in it. Stand firm and trust that God will exalt you by true grace. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that your favor upon us comes in a variety of forms and it comes when we need it the most. Thank you that you call us your children, that you love us, that you look to us with kindness and blessing. That your mighty hand is at work in the world. Help us to humble ourselves. Help us to stand firm. Increase our faith in the midst of difficulty that you will indeed exalt us at the right time. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.